0: Welcome to the Agency Exits podcast. I'm Raj Jha and in this episode I talk with Mike Monroe, and we have a fascinating discussion which talks a lot about the details of his acquisition, how it came to be, and how he managed to get acquired after only two years in operation. Uh, And then we talk about some of the reasons why you get acquired, which might not be what you expect. So one thing to note about here, Mike runs a development agency. So they do software and coding, but if you are a marketing agency, an advertising agency, et cetera, don't be put off by that because you might not know some of the technical stuff he's talking about. The business lessons he has to share are incredible. So make sure that you dive in and listen to how he's thinking about how he structured the agency, how he approached getting clients, because all of that applies regardless of what kind of agency you have. So. Without any further ado, here's Mike Monroe. Welcome to the Agency Exits podcast, where we hear from agency owners how they started and grew and sold their business. I'm here with Mike Monroe, who's the co-founder of Obelisk, and he's a two-time agency founder having sold uh, Greenfield a number of years ago. So welcome, and
1: uh, thanks for coming, Mike. Yeah. Hi, Raj. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to come on. I, I know when we chatted last, we were we chatted about some just some ideas around what are some things that I could share kind of in my agency life that could be helpful for other agency founders such as myself. So hopefully I can offer some guidance today that will be helpful for some of your listeners. I think a good one to kick off, because I know um, this is the Agency exit podcast, and you and I talked a little bit about it was just the acquisition process that I went to. So I'm um, happy to talk a little bit. Maybe I'll start briefly or try to be brief on my agency career, what kind of brought me to starting an agency, um, and then talk a little bit more details about the kind of the beginning and why we sold that company, what that acquisition looked like and Happy to answer any questions along the way and talk about stuff that we do at our agency today. Which the good news is, both agencies look pretty much uh, very similar, and, and we'll. say you've been doing it again, again right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that as feedback on the acquisition process and yeah. you know why I am where I am today. So funny, yeah. I mean, I started in software back in 1999. Um, was an econ major in college. Thought I was going to work on Wall Street showed up at a startup that was building an institutional bond trading marketplace on the internet. Awesome team of people. The name of the company was Visible Markets. Startup VC funded. I walked in to take a job as a sales assistant for the summer. And they asked me if I would do software quality assurance. It's pretty good, but a little bit at the time. And you know, I said, yeah, I, just, I was a college kid looking for a job. So I, I said yes and ended up working for them for the summer. And then Actually, that turned into a full-time job. And it's funny, I share that story because I, I do have a, I have a partner in my agency business today. He was a partner at my last agency. And we actually met at that company back in 1999. And we've kind of worked off and on together almost since then. So that company went out of business about a year. and a, No, it was a summer of 2021. That company went out of business. It was an unbelievable idea. I mean, it was the first bond trading marketplace being built on the internet, just a little ahead of its time. Worked for a bunch of startups after that, small startups, large startups, Uh, a couple of them that were, one of them at least that was successful and acquired by a larger company. And, you know, fast forward, probably midway through my career, ended up working with my my business partner now, Ryan, full-time at a larger, it was Reuters at the time, then Thomson Reuters, and now the division would be inside of Refinitiv, basically rebuilding products that hadn't had a lot of technical investment for many years. So at the time, this is mid-2000s, 2005, 2008-ish range. A lot of these products, some of them Java, some of them uh, early uh, .NET programming languages, were, were built probably in the late 90s and hadn't had much technical investment. So for years, we rebuilt products internally for them from scratch. That went very well. He was brought in through an acquisition to do just that and inside of this division we work in. And I share that because that was the jumping point to our first agency. Him and I were itching to go off and start our own business. We were very successful with running teams, doing this inside of what was then Thompson Reuters. And we figured, uh, we, we just we, I'm not saying that we weren't proud of people. We just, we weren't really confident in a great idea, but we knew how to do this. And we knew that, you know, AWS cloud was starting. We had a lot of experience there. We knew that there were a lot of clients out in the field who could probably use this help. And so we started Greenfield. That was in April of 2014 and quickly landed some clients and it really took off. And a lot of those clients were clients in the similar space. Early on, it was clients that were still using a lot of on-premise hardware, server, infrastructure, a lot of it in financial services, because that was the sector we were in. Mm-hmm. I think I remember one of our earlier clients, they had an, an office in New York City. They were forward thinking from a technology perspective and they wanted to move their office, but they had a, their own data center inside of their office in New York City. So think open up a kind of a small office and it's filled with servers and it's got you know modern HVAC services to take care right. of this. And they had an IT team and They're paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in support and service for this infrastructure. You know, they had just recently bought an EMC server. And at the end of the day, these were products that were supporting, I don't know, tens of thousands of people, users at most at enterprise level pricing. So great businesses, but just at that point, you could already put things in AWS. So I remember just that client alone. When we were done rebuilding their product, which was now people use this all the time, but cloud native, their ongoing, you know, support and in infrastructure and operational support was costing them. It was close to three hundred thousand a year plus, including the operational resources, the IT staff that they had. And when we were done, we moved them on the AWS. I think their bill was I don't know fifty, sixty k at most. Pretty good now. ROI. Yeah, yeah, it was, and that was just that was just think of that as just support and hosting. Coming along with that was a completely new product that, to a certain extent, you know, their older product showed its wear. So it's, we did a lot of those projects. We also forward-thinking technology consulting company. There were some new JavaScript libraries coming out at the time. Facebook is front and center on the internet at this time, so. Is grandmas and grandpas and just I used to talk to my Ryan and I would talk to him and say you know it's funny because we have these enterprise customers also medium-sized I, I say enterprise but a lot of our clients were were medium-sized businesses these managing directors I, kind of knew what was available in terms of a reactive web right they were starting to use these online properties such as Facebook and, and other new technologies coming along and they'd They'd use these things on the web, and they'd be super happy with them. And then they'd go and they use their product that they sell to clients. <laughs> it's like old server technology, and then uh... yeah, they would see this is old. The technology is not; it's just not standing up to what it should be. Our, our clients are asking, "Why can we have something that's more modern?" There, you know, now there's concerns with because. Cloud hosting and AWS is on the scene, and and other cloud providers. And AWS is rolling out different services to make building these products much faster, easier, and simpler. Some of these medium-sized businesses who've been around for tens of years are now worried about the four-person startup. You know, mm-hmm. for four people who just graduated from college, who, whose dad is in you know institutional asset management and. Decide they're going to build a product and, and be competing with some of these incumbents. So, right, uh, a lot of movement there. And that was kind of that was our foray into consulting. We picked up some clients on the financial services side, and then just got a name for ourselves in the Boston area. We built some products early on using some of the newer technologies that some of the other people, at least in the Boston area, weren't using yet. And we talked about some of those at some of the local um, tech meetups. And just kind of shared our story as much as we could. And that just, that led to work. It just kind of mm-hmm. opened up the word of mouth marketing. And that has been a big part of our sales process and lead generation since then. So, uh, so would you say that, I mean, I, I
0: use this phrase a lot, the accidental agency owner. It's kind of like you just follow it, follow into it, it because of the kind of work you're doing, the kind of folks you're surrounding with. And you just like, oh, okay, I can make a living doing this.
1: Yeah, I think so. I know, I, Ryan and I knew that we wanted to go off on our own. So we knew that. And I knew that we were really good at at building the products that we were building. From a skill set, the skill set that we had, the team that we had around us. It just, it was the thing that I wanted to leverage. But, you know, I think it was also, I knew, we'll talk a little bit about this too, right? Like just my own personal confidence level. Mm-hmm. I was at the time... I felt confident that I could go off and start a services company. Right. I was not confident, not that I wasn't confident, but I was more scared to go off and build a product that I wasn't sure that people would want and how many years would I spend doing that? That's the way to succeed, right? You come up with an idea, you watch it evolve over a, what is usually a period of years. People, you know, people say there's these overnight successes, but you know, you see it, it's most of these successful SaaSs have you know, there's 10 years that they've right. paid their dues and maybe it's around seven or eight, the successful ones where they really see some pickup. And I just, mm-hmm. I kind of knew enough about the market. I just had my first child at the time. He was six months old. So I knew we could walk out on the street and find some work and do great work for clients that I I thought that there was a, a tremendous need for. And to a certain extent, I still think that. So, so yeah, it's a bit accidental, but strategic in the perspective that I just I was very confident that we had a we had value that we could provide to the marketplace. Yeah, I I think it's an interesting point because where you were in life
0: and looking at the certainty versus today's revenue versus tomorrow's revenue, I think a lot of agency owners beat themselves up because it's like, Oh, I wish I had a product company and they missed the part that you just nailed, which is, okay, but are you willing to eat ramen noodles for ten years to yeah. maybe have this happen? And, or maybe start you know from scratch in your forties, having really built nothing, and that's like that's a lot of the product companies versus an agency where you can start it, and maybe your exit opportunity is not a saAS valuation, but it is going to be something you're making cash all along the way, and you can provide for your family, you can have a good life doing that It's just a different choice.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, looking back to. I think it's Basecamp. They're a pretty famous company, at least in the technology stack that we work in most predominantly on the Ruby on Rails side. They started as a consultancy. They were doing mostly software consulting and kind of as they went along, a product grew out of that. So in the back of my mind, it's interesting, right? Because I'm a big believer in focus too. So I'm always leery of this. The perfect product idea will come my way. I I almost think I'm not willing to to dip my toes there until the agency has become so successful that Mm -hmm. there's just cash being thrown off. And I look at that product company as another separate entity that I'm investing in, that I'm, you know, to a certain extent being the large angel investor for that product. And or maybe it's a maybe it's a studio of some sort where we're exploring ideas. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's that's reality. Like products are hard to be successful yeah. at it takes a long time and a lot of work and i think you're right on people who are familiar with agency exits the multiples aren't what they are if you have a product to sell but i you know i think there's a reason for that you can make a service business you know pretty quickly there are different challenges for sure it's hard to i i think it's easier to leverage Resources in a product company than it is in a services company as service company as it grows your the number of people underneath you will grow. There's some leverage points, but every extra million that's coming in the door is relying on some more people to provide that service, yeah, and training and it's you know I, I think the key to a successful services business is, is successfully building the culture and the level of service that you want to provide for your clients and also Embedding that into the people that that you bring on board, so training is a big one, recruitment is a big one. I think that's where you know successful leader where leadership needs to succeed on a professional services side for sure so so in greenfield, you grew that
0: pretty fast. I mean, you hit a healthy seven figures in a couple of years, so maybe you could tell a little bit about how did that growth happen, and how did you not have your hair on fire all the time i mean can I can only imagine taking engagements. Either at that rapid pace or of that size and having to staff them and all that, so maybe talk a little bit about that. I'm sure people would love to hear
1: you know what makes that trajectory to multiple millions in a couple of years yeah it's it's yes, yeah. so I think let's not call it luck, but there's a little bit of that luck and timing I think is involved there, so Ryan and I were working for a Larger company. We had met, we had some, we have met, we were both managers. He was running the group. I was running a, a dev team underneath him. It was a sizable team. We were sizable within the organization. So we networked a lot just in general, just through the day to day business of working inside of Reuters and Thomson Reuters for, you know, I think it was probably six or seven years. Mm-hmm. He was there for a year longer than me. When we left Thomson Reuters to start our own consulting company, We actually there were some people that we had worked with previously, who were out working for called the competition or just working in the same space, in the same vertical that were working on similar products, who had similar challenges. And there's a couple of them stick out in my mind. One of them for sure who hired us very early on to come in, and he was running another company inside of the that sector. He had spent a year kind of redoing the sales and marketing. Piece of that organization, and and he was ready to tackle tackle the technical side, mm-hmm. and so he hired us early on to to rebuild a product for them, and that turned into multiple projects over a series of years, and then we had multiple other people that we had met. So why I bring that up is because they were, the, these people worked inside of a larger company who were used to hiring. Like, we we had seen consultants inside that were from Ernst and Young. I mean, they were they were used to paying somewhat premium prices for consulting help and expecting a level of service there. They also had trust in us because they knew our deliver. Well, they had a high level of confidence that our delivery would be on point. But I also knew when I started this business that we couldn't be the cheaper alternative. Like we just, right. we could not be the race to the bottom. We're good at what we do. We do a very good job of building products for our clients with stable technologies but also modern. So I say stable and modern because we're not, we don't build with the stuff that is, you know, that you can go and read about on Hacker News tomorrow or the new shiny thing. We let things bake. We keep an eye on new shiny things. And as the new shiny things become stable, if that's the thing that, or the technology or framework that should be used to solve a problem, then we'll utilize it. But otherwise we, and even today, more today than even then, but we, even then, we had the confidence to sit in a room with people who might have read something on the internet and said, well, isn't this new thing the silver bullet that solves all things? And we would say, no, it's not. And here are some of the trade-offs. And here are the, here's the tech stack that we suggest to solve this problem. And, and we have the ex- expertise to do that. But circling back to the revenue thing, it's, we charged the, what I thought was a strong price at the time. It wasn't top of the market but it definitely wasn't cheap. And we never never sold hourly engagements. We sold a team of developers at typically at that time, it was a weekly rate. And most of that moved to monthly invoices. And so we would scope out a team. This project is going to take, let's just say six to nine months. It's probably a team of one to three at the beginning. Maybe it's going to ramp up to three to four ramp down to one to two at the end. Then there's some maintenance stuff, but you know, a few developers, we hired them, you know, we paid them what we thought was a good competitive rate for the market. And then we charged prices that we thought were worthwhile for the value that we added. And the margins were good. They weren't extreme, but you can't make a professional services business work if you don't have Healthy margins. Yeah, it just won't. So it just
0: won't work. Let let me hone in on a couple of things because there's probably some people watching who are development agencies like you, but they're also marketing agencies, advertising agencies. But there's a few things that you said that no matter what kind of agency somebody's running, is important to really internalize. And number one is the race to the bottom on prices. I think you nailed it. You nailed it there, right? You can't be the cheaper alternative. Uh, You can be a little bit cheaper, but you can't be the the cheaper alternative. And the second thing, which I think. In development agencies is typically more advanced than in other kinds of agencies. And marketing agencies certainly could take a page out of a playbook, which is you talked very carefully about scoping different stages of the product. Because you're costing it out on a per segment of the project basis, you really are paying attention to the margins. And I see a lot of agencies where it's like, okay, I think that, you know, lick their finger and it's like, ah, that's about five grand a month. They'll just pick a number and then try to make the number work later. But by yeah. like doing this work in advance, you can actually forecast your margins and it really gives you the ability to plan and thus grow instead of six months later, you're like, oh crap, I'm totally out of scope. My margins stink. And now I'm fighting internal fires instead of having a healthy margin and going in and growing more business. Couldn't agree more.
1: I, I even as a business owner myself, who hires service providers from time to time, I almost want to try to understand how they're making money because if they're not making enough money off of me it, one you have to provide value right so like at a minimum, you can charge good prices and have good margins if you're providing value so like you what it no matter what it is that you're providing you you just you have to figure out what it is that that value is, and you should be able to charge for it, but I never want someone working for me who's not making who's not making money because. They're just going to do a terrible job. Right. And so, to a certain extent, you know, there's pricing theory, there's, you know, project pricing, who wins? Estimating in software is hard to do. I wish it was easy. It's probably one of the hardest things in the 20 some years I've been in the business that I wish was I had a more scientific idea of how to solve with more confidence. And so, Yeah, from the get-go, we just that's how we we just priced with some variability. But and I think and an an important thing there and in terms of building trust with our clients is our contracts were always and this was risk that we took on. They were 30-day exits. So I always said, listen, we're, we would also typically for a new client who didn't know us, we would do something small. We'd do a small project and typically smaller than what we would want. But we'd say, hey, let's. How do we carve out a small project? Where there's less financial risk on your side, but we explore a relationship, not just for us, but also for them, right? Like we both want to know that we can work together and be successful because what's important is the outcome. What is the future place that we want to put them in? And can we both work together to get them there? I lost my train of thought there. (laughs) No, And
0: and I think that the other piece that I want to uh, underscore is that you were going for enterprise grade clients. So any kind of agency always has the opportunity to either go for, well, you can go for the SMBs, you know, the really yep. small companies. You can go for mid-size, lower middle market, or you can go for these enterprise clients and maybe not necessarily go for everything, right? Maybe go for one division of that Correct. or go for a specific project. And that's where you're going to find, even though it seems harder to sell there. The end result, at least that I found as they sold to larger and larger organizations is like the sale's actually not harder. It might be a little bit longer because the decision-making process is longer, but it's not harder. In fact, selling to the cheaper clients, the the lower-end clients, they're more worried about cash and less worried about outcome. And the bigger ones are more worried about the outcome. And as you were talking about, well, here's the tried and true tech stack. So you're de-risking it for them because they don't want to look like an idiot for their boss, for their coworkers,
1: and they're willing to pay a premium for that. So it's just a more comfortable place to live. Yeah, for sure. They also have, they also, their businesses are throwing off even margins on their side. Typically, you know, even for a product inside of a division, inside of a company is doing millions of dollars in revenue. And so when they're looking at hiring a team of software engineers that depending on the size could cost, Six hundred to a million dollars a year. If the product is doing thirteen million in revenue that year, it's you're dealing with numbers that make more sense. To a certain extent, there's also in these the we've sold more to medium size versus enterprise, and, and there's a reason we we've had some enterprise customers. Let's talk about procurement a little bit. The um often in these medium sized businesses that roll up to a larger organization, um the the larger organization will sometimes set aside cash, capex dollars where We're going to invest in this line of business this year, so we're going to put, you know, three million dollars into technology upgrades that they can go off and spend next year. And so, when they look at everything cohesively, some money is spent for getting rid of on-premise service, not as much anymore because almost everyone's on the cloud these days. But, you know, is it do we become more cloud-native? How do we deal with, you know, what are cybersecurity concerns? We have a product or multiple products that need to be rebuilt. Let's go out and hire the teams. And often we're we're kind of funded with those dollars. It's interesting, you brought up enterprise, right? I think we've had some, and I would agree with you wholeheartedly, the sales process might even be easier in the larger clients because proving out value is the same, that doesn't change. But the inherent risk for the check signer relative to the budgets that they deal with is just easier. They're used to spending 500k a million dollars in a year on a large investment project Mm -hmm. small business that's doing three to five million in revenue a year that's an extreme amount of money now we're talking about that could be their net profit for the next year or two years three years plus so so there's a lot of carry there but on the enterprise side though we've had some enterprise customers and at first the relationship was great and then procurement quickly i'm surprised we moved in through procurement early on but for service providers that are dealing with enterprise, you know, Fortune 500 companies, often procurement alone will have requirements on you, such as your. we filled out a survey that like, was going to force us for a third party to sign off that our offices and spaces that we used for the course of doing business were not polluting the earth or, you know, you The last thing a Fortune 500 company wants is a little news blurb on CNBC or CNN that's, you know, XYZ company is using, you know, providers who are polluting the earth or hiring a workforce that is underpaid. And so, for their own publicity concerns, often there is just procurement things that can get into the mix that can make it really hard for a service provider who's doing seven figures in in revenue per year to, to support from a cost perspective.
0: Yeah, I think it's a range, right? For the on the enterprises, if you're working for a divisional one, or if it's not considered core, it's also different in software. I mean, I was in software in the ancient days where we couldn't even get things negotiated for the cloud because it was a yeah. complete and utter security risk. Yeah. Uh, so you know that's its whole, whole own world. But I guess the thought that I have is, don't think so small in terms of the client base, right? It, people think it's like, oh, I could never support a hundred million dollar business. Well. I got news for you, $100 million business actually isn't that big when you're talking about a product business, right? Yeah. So stop trying to always sell to the sub $10 million business because it seems comfortable because you've got this imposter syndrome, you don't think you could possibly do it. If you are good at what you do and you've got to articulate that value, you absolutely can sell. It's just, you know, you got to learn some of the lingo and you've got to learn how to work that acquisition process that they're running internally.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: Yeah. So, yes. so tell me a little bit more about the, the acquisition itself. Uh, yeah, I for think sure. That, you know, super compressed timeline of the agency's life. You, you scale it real quick and then to have, you know, an exit in two years is pretty exceptional.
1: Yeah. Uh, we started Greenfield April of 2014 and we walked into our acquirer's doors June 1st of 2016. So, there's yeah, it's a clear story of why this marriage came together. So I filled in a little bit earlier, kind of the business that we were doing. We were doing a lot of web application build outs. We we're also doing some infrastructure, work, not infrastructure work, backend work. So think web applications, talking to APIs, moving data around, consuming data from third-party services, building performant databases. Think of that world. And we were based in the Boston area. There was a larger company in the Boston area, at the time that has now been acquired multiple times going forward, they were an industry leader building mobile applications for iOS and Android. And they were big in the US. At the time they were doing, they were eight figure business. So they were not to get broad strokes for close to 20 million in revenue and their goal was to get 50, but they were only doing mobile apps. And they had a very good client list They'd been doing it for years. They were very good at what they did. A lot of their clients were asking them to come and build web applications as part of the engagements that they were investigating with some of their current clients and then newer clients. The other big thing was I talked about APIs earlier. So these these mobile applications they were building them for their clients and, the, and their cli- they were relying on their clients tech teams to kind of build out the the back end for these mobile apps especially new ones and they were running into problems they they wanted to take control of of their their delivery and and they weren't so they'd build these beautiful well designed well working mobile applications but then they would be slow because you want a list of inventory for a product a mobile a product that shows Uh, a list of items for a retail establishment online, the items would come back slow because the API was slow. Like you just, there's nothing you can do about that. So, so we met them. They reached out to us. They heard about us in the Boston area. They heard about the work they were doing. They heard very highly, you know, good reviews of the web work that we were doing, web applications and APIs and database optimization, performant applications. And yeah, so they just kind of reached out and they said, "Hey, we heard about you guys. You know, you think you're doing great work. Do you want to come back, come by and meet us?" And Ryan and I went and met their founders, and it was a great meeting right 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 from the get go. You know, they had told us, you know, we concentrate on mobile. We we have some web stuff mm-hmm. that we'd like to have built, and maybe there's a partnership here. And so that's how the trail began. Really, is they said, "Would you guys be interested in? We have some projects. We don't have a web team, but we know you guys do." And as a service provider, always thinking about, you know, where's the next set of work coming from? No matter how successful you are, as the founder, you're always worried about that. So you always want to look for these stable lines who could trickle in business that you could kind of turn off and on, right? And so I looked at that partnership as an opportunity for us to, if they have work and we have people who are close to the bench or might be on the bench, then we could engage in that partnership work. And if not, then we just keep going and hopefully the partnership would move forward. And we didn't really have many people at the bench, but I thought, you know, exploring this partnership was important for the business. And so one of our lead developers, we kind of loaned off to them for a few projects. They continue to work in-house, you know, as part of our team, but we're doing work that, that the acquirer owned. And that turned into some more work and that went on for a few months and then it quickly turned into you know what, we reached out to you guys, we have a lot of work on our hands that's not just mobile, we're looking for a strong team to come in house and and tackle this. And so that morphed into conversations about an acquisition of Greenfield by them. And yeah, it's funny, I looked earlier in, in some of my emails, we started conversations the summer of 2015, and then the acquisition was done summer of 2016 but it's a good one to talk about i think it's similar to any other acquisition i say it's good to talk about but like there were a few times where that deal went dead like especially early on you know early conversations we were partners they floated should we acquire you terms conditions deal size we weren't in love with we also had a lot of work on our hands so it was just it's craziness you have all this work going on and you're and then you're trying to And acquisition takes up a lot of time. And so we were also weighing, do we continue to explore these conversations when we're extremely busy and this is only going to continue to be more work for us? And I just, I wasn't, we weren't really ready to be acquired at the time. As months went by, I think we warmed up a little bit more to the idea for me personally. And I think that this is, I think that, I think it's good to share, like there's two pieces of this that I think is very important for other business owners just from my personal perspective, one of the, two of the biggest reasons that that I sold that company is one, I was a first time founder. I had a business partner, but he was also, he wasn't a first time founder, but this, this was the first time where, you know, it's just kind of both of us. Like he was with a team of four to five others with a, I would say an executive, senior executive level and senior sales at the time. But we went off and started this company and it was going very well, right? I couldn't have thought Never in my wildest dreams did I think that we were going to be doing, you know, close to almost close to a million dollars our first year in business, which and then the next year we're a million plus I just didn't fathom that. Right. And I had a I lacked confidence. I was waking up every morning saying to myself, like, why is this working? It's just luck. I don't have anything to do with our success. It's like, is, is the merry-go-round going to stop? Yeah, I really did. And and so I bring that up because there was another piece of it too, which was I also lacked confidence in the, not in the team that we built. I was I thought that the team we built was top-notch. I lacked confidence in whether or not the team thought that I was the right leader for them. And I say that because this acquirer comes along, right? They're successful. We're, we're all an engineering team. You walk into their office and they have these little, this like, this well-designed thing of chips for all their clients that they've worked for. And they have a whole floor in this Boston office. Very fancy. They, they just seem so successful. The, the developers that they hired, it's a big team. They're all smart. And I thought there's no way my team wants to keep working for me when there's an opportunity for us to join this bigger force of really smart people that are doing really cool things. And it just didn't go that way. Like, you know, I, I walked in, I think the biggest thing that I took away, and I know what you and I talked about this a little bit earlier on, was just what are some things that I learned? And personally, the, the biggest thing I learned on the after being acquired was, wow, that was a big trade, trading away the company that I ran on my own, you know, with a business partner. And a big part of that was a lack of confidence, right? I was also, I was interested in helping. I was, professionally, I was interested in helping a company get from 20 to 50 and playing an integral role that rather than being, uh, running a company with, to a certain extent, like a lot more power, getting from what I thought was like, how do we get from like two-ish to 10, right? Mm -hmm. And I got inside and I just realized all the same problems Just a bigger company. There's just more people. Not much more that was solved. I mean, they were a bigger company. There were systems in place for sure. But the things that I struggled with as a leader and a founder, as soon as I walked in the door, I had the utmost confidence in myself, which is which stinks because I I had to trade away my company to put myself in a position to say, like, actually, you know what, Mike, you might have known what I don't want to say I knew what I was doing, but I had more confidence in I could have it wasn't until I went and worked inside of another larger professional services company that was doing what we did to a certain extent, that I build the confidence that I needed to say like, if I knew what I, if I know what I know now post acquisition, I could go, I could step back in time and run Greenfield and I'm yeah. not sure I would have sold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of those things that, that, so I've,
0: you know, talked to agencies of all sizes. And so I was at a... I think it's a three, $400 million agency. I'm getting a tour and they're telling me how all these components work and how things work. And I was like, the big takeaway I had is there is no magic. I mean, it's just, yeah. a, it, it's, it, they have a bigger boat and they decided to go after bigger clients and they were ruthless about their margins internally. And you know, they do have a lot in terms of talent development that a smaller agency probably doesn't have and structured, but like, it's not magic. It's just systems and processes and getting good at a few basics and doing it over and over again and being accountable to those basics. But once you master that, then you've got options, right? You can run it, you
1: can sell it, but it really is just yeah, a formula. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's fine. I don't regret the acquisition at all. Like I'm very, I also try my best not to look back, right? Like I think if I was to put myself in the same position, again, I, my business partner included, we would make the same, I think the information we knew at the time, we were doing it for all the right reasons, right? Mm-hmm. If there is one thing that I do regret is we did, we built a great team of people and the mm-hmm. service services companies survive off of their people. And I like, that's the one thing that I wish, cause that came with us. Right. And those people, you know, we've had a chance to work with a good core of them since that time Mm -hmm. but I just I wish I had figured out something about the confidence that I was I wish I had figured out on my own that that it wasn't magic and that I had some of those so so, some of those core the skill set that I thought I might have been lacking just to see what we could have done with that team on on a longer time scale.
0: Yeah. We all sell for different reasons and different time. I think, you know, I shared my acquisition went similar to yours. I mean, I said no. And then it was like 18 months later when I was like, okay, yes, I'm quite done now. And part of that was like, I was in a mental space where I didn't feel like I was being a good dad because it was just, you know, the, it was kind of crushing at that soul crushing at that point. I was like, you know, I, I can't do this for another five years to hopefully get the next biggest bump up in valuation. And fortunately, the partner I sold to, I'm the CEO, Matt, fantastic guy, still a buddy of mine. You know, he was there at the right time when I had, I wouldn't say a moment of weakness, I had a moment of realization that if I wanted to be on the personal side, the kind of dad that I wanted to be, this is what I had to do then.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And we should touch on that. For founders with new families or families in general, That's a, that plays a huge role. If someone is not a founder and they're thinking about becoming a founder and also thinking about having a family, they should keep in mind that the family will impact their, it, it, the two go hand in hand. It's because it's, you raised that when we were acquired, I just had my, I we were, we walked in on June 1st. I had my second child on July 4th and walking away, my second child had a big part in that. Right. And so when Ryan and I left, It wasn't a lot of like, well, why did, because we ended up leaving the acquiring company and, and the team that we brought in stayed behind. A lot of that was just, it wasn't anything like the company we left was doing unbelievable work. The team that we were, the teams that we were working with were awesome teams. But you know, my, my business partner, he had his first child a month after my, I had my second and both of us kind of just thought, there's a lot of craziness going on and him and I had been now been consulting, quote unquote, for a couple of years almost, and we knew we could go off and do some freelancing type work, just him and I. We knew we'd have enough work and it enabled us to have a period measured in years where we were economically safe. We traded away a lot as part of the buyout though, because you know, we're happy to talk a little bit about that, just numbers in general, but you know, when you sell at least for us, like there was a deal size, and a lot of that deal side had deal size had earnout. So they purchased us for a certain deal size, and some of that had like some cash upfront. but a lot of it was built into objectives and continuing to work with the team going forward and building an exciting business in, inside of the acquire and and we left, and so we traded away some of that but but we knew. We had young children. We knew that we could go off and be very economically stable in terms of the rates that I thought that we could charge, even just for him and I to continue to do some work. And we took a little bit of money off the table as part of the acquisition, right? And and so that's what we did. And you know, we talked about some of the struggles that I had and why we stepped into this acquisition project process and what were some of the outcomes I think of. But on the flip side of you know a Major reason why we ended up leaving the acquiring company was personal, right? Like, yeah, we had small children at home, and we, I think, we thought here's a good opportunity to to have a better work life balance for at least the earlier years of their lives, and so that was a huge part of it.
0: Yeah, I think that people often think of it, and they might be listening, watching this, and saying, okay, well, this is an exit is just a monetary thing, and it's not, especially in the services business. Because this is, you know, this wasn't my first services business. Before this, I actually had a law firm. And I left that law firm for a similar reason. My oldest child, it's like, okay, she's four. And uh, again, I couldn't be a good dad. I was too wrapped up in it. And then the agency that I sold, you know, I had the second kid. And I, this realization that my first was, it's like, wow, she's going into high school. Yeah. And I have four more years with her. Yeah. And then she's, you know out of the nest. And it's like, what am I going to remember those years for? So you can't over index just for it's just the cash. Yeah. Also, where are you? And then what have you taken from it right, during this process? Because I think the confidence thing was pretty big. You knew that you could do this again because you saw there is no magic and you're like, okay, well, if I need to do this again, I can do this again and create another services business. It's like the ultimate backstop. You can always do it again once you've figured it out. And once you've got that sale under your belt, the fact is people will take you much more seriously.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I agree. And I knew we weren't big enough where the money was going to be enough where we were just going to walk off into the sunset. Like I thought, okay, we'll take a little bit of scratch off the table, but it was, you know, arguably it wasn't meaningful in terms of if you're running a successful agency that's doing seven figures in revenue, uh, you figured something out and there's some stability to income there. You know, you're not, it's not just a full struggle all the time. And it's, I think you, you mentioned something there. It's not about, I think when it does become, when economics plays a major role in it is when the economics is so much, the deal size is so big that it, you have to ask yourself like, hey, am I doing a disservice to the business or myself for not taking this money now? For, because if it's life-changing money, then economics plays a much larger role there. And there's a lot of things that you could do. There's a lot of you. There's a lot of optionality that money provides. But here's what's interesting. In you know most cases, when the deal size is big enough, you've already paid the dues. You've already worked the hours. You've already, you know, you've figured out the oh shit moments. You've figured out, you've had your hair on fire. You've kissed death. That business has kissed death with you and your people near you multiple times and you've come back. All your battle wounds are already there. So to a certain extent, (laughs) there's another one where you're like, okay, like what else am I... What else am I selling this business for, other than like this deal size is huge and yeah, this money changes everything in my life to a certain extent and and then yeah, that becomes a a big role. But m- most often, I think if you look through I, the common service provider transaction sizes, you know, it's the money helps, but not many people unless they're larger deals are people just saying like, oh yeah, no, I'm all done, I'm just retiring at 25 now. That happens. But, you know, usually there's 10 years of work that someone has put in to build something substantial that has a a value, a valuation tied to it that is life changing.
0: And I think it's also, there are a lot of agency owners that will go for five years, six years before figuring out, oh, wait a minute, I should start thinking about enterprise value. Yeah. So there'll be that period of learning. I mean, you did this in a very accelerated fashion, but I would think by and large, there's this five, maybe seven year period where they don't really know what they're doing. And they're just running around doing stuff. Things might be clicking and working, but they've created no real enterprise value. The margins aren't there. The LTV for the customers is not there. There's there's a few things that are broken. And then they yeah. get serious when they get an offer, maybe out of the blue, and then the offer kind of stinks because yeah. it's not really what they expected. And they go, oh, okay, I need to get this in shape. And then they don't realize it's like two to three years of doing a bunch of things right to get to the number that they actually want. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's do the homework now and understand what that needs to look like. And maybe you can't get there now, but at least you know what you need to do.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I, it's funny, I, I took some notes for myself before coming on. And one of the things that I had in my back pocket, this acquisition process, we weren't thinking of being acquired, which was great. And I think one of the other things looking back is I wish I spent some more. One thing, one big takeaway is I wish I had spent some more time, not necessarily shopping us around, but earlier in the process, if I thought, because at first I thought like, no, we're not going to sell the company. And then when we turned that corner, we were already dating the acquirer enough where it just seemed, it was bad business sense to not at that point in time, at least uh, sniff around. And I think that there were other companies at the time that we could have chatted with to see if there was interest there. And a lot of that is just the um even if you like you wanna be you wanna be in business with the person who's acquiring you, there's just it's about data collection at that point. And so if there are other potential acquirers around, like even just having con- conversations with them to see where they might be, keep your acquirer honest. It also gives you data points to look back at the deal after the fact and not thinking that you didn't do the due diligence that you should have, and I think it's interesting to share. It's so funny because I talked to some newer agency owners from time to time, and there's just something about it. And I think it's the numbers seem pretty clear on the internet, but even at the time I didn't know. And so when in the acquisition process, luckily I had uh, an, a mentor of mine who had been through multiple software-related acquisitions um, mm-hmm. on a multitude of different scales, and was entrepreneur in residence at a famous at General Catalyst. A, Mm -hmm. software VC firm. So I relied on him to give me some help to get through this process. I also had a very close professional friend of mine who was in the VC industry and sees a lot of deals, even on the agency side, just Mm -hmm. the business they're in. And so they coached me around, you know, just raw numbers and some that I'm, I'm, you know, at the time it was, and I think the agency market is probably still close. Like we were looking for something that was, you know, somewhere between three to five times, you know, net profit, or one to two times revenue. And we traded against our revenue numbers for 2015. Our deal size was right in there. Now, uh, what people should also remember is everyone thinks, oh, you know, I'm doing a, I run a business. It's a professional services. We're doing $3 million in revenue. And so our floor should be $3 million. If we just sell the company, we get $3 million. Unfortunately, you got to remember deal size. Another big one that I came out of that acquisition was just terms right so Mm -hmm. deal size is one thing but the terms that's where the wheels turn that's where the knobs turn how much is cash up front how much is cash versus potential stock and is the stock liquid illiquid if it's an illiquid acquirer now you're probably not taking money out of that unless that company is acquired there's just (laughs) there's a lot of new ones it gets maddening the terms there's a lot of wheels to turn and that's really where deals look much different from others. And yeah. to a certain extent, it's a lot of just it's almost like selling house. Can, is the, can the buyer cross the finish line? Yeah. So even they, if you they, want to go on bed with them. Deals. There's, there's yeah, no such there's thing
0: a, as a clean. I mean, there's there are a few. If if your agency is pushing, you know, twenty, thirty, forty million dollars, okay, maybe it'll be cleaner for you because the check will be big enough. But yes. by and large, especially in the sub ten million Yes. In revenue zone, you'll see all different flavors. And there's this old adage it's like, you can pick the price if I could pick the terms, right? Because I'll just hold you over the barrel for a major earnout. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll give you 10 million bucks, but it's a hundred year earnout in all back loaded. And in the meantime, you get a $50,000 salary. Yes. You know, there's wacky deals like that. So someone yes. can say a big headline number. Yeah. Sounds really exciting. But the reality of the situation is they pretty much got nothing. And yeah. That that abounds in the space when people have these
1: agencies, which are high top line numbers but very little profit. Yeah, for sure. And if there's one thing that I would leave as a takeaway, especially for your show, where it's hopefully we talked enough about the acquisition side uh, from me, but I think when it comes to like agency exits, it's for any founders out there who haven't been through an acquisition project. If there's uh, been through an acquisition, the one thing I would leave is make sure they do their due diligence so when and if they start getting into the i'm thinking about selling my company someday talk to as many people as you can talk to as many you know as many people have been through the acquisition process on the sell side and the buy side every data point is going to be helpful in terms of like cuz like we just said terms is a big thing there and if you have an idea of what those terms are that you're looking for you you have an idea of what are the wheels that are going to be turned as part of the negotiation process I think that, that allows for a better a better end game for not just the buyer but also, you know, the company who's being acquired as well. I think it the only good things come of that. But when you have two sides that well, especially if you have a buyer who's experienced and a seller who they go inside and they're not gonna be happy and the deal is not gonna add the value that, that the buyer wanted right. going into it anyway. So yeah, if that's one thing I could leave is Start on that due diligence, collecting data, talking to people, and I would say any agency owner pick a quarter, even if you're not thinking about selling, pick a quarter where that's one of your big, your big objectives for the quarter is I'm going to do some due diligence on what it would be like if we sold this company someday, and, and just start collecting some numbers and talking to some people, and I that that can't hurt in any way. Yeah, that that's awesome. I think that's a perfect perfect closing note, Mike. That this is
0: awesome. I, I appreciate all of the, the detail that you shared. And I think there's a lot that folks can take away from this. Where can we go to internet stalk you and Obelisk? What's the, yeah, thing for to sure. People will find out more.
1: Yeah. So Obelisk is O-B-L-S-K.com. And I can be found on Twitter, Mike P as in Paul Monroe with a U, M-U-N-R-O-E. And then the same on LinkedIn. So Mike P Monroe on LinkedIn. And if someone wants to shoot me an email, it's Mike at Obelisk.com.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much Mike. This has been fantastic. Appreciate you joining.
1: Thanks for having me, Raj. This is great. Well